I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. In 1898, the United States went to war with Spain. The conflict sparked a debate over the identity of the United States. Is it a republic or is it an empire? Now, I don't want to diminish the empire building of the early republic in the sense that I think America has pretty much always been an empire of some degree or extent. There was the imperialism of manifest destiny. There was the Mexican-American War. There were the Indian Wars of the 19th century. Continental expansion and conquest were, in many ways, the equivalent of overseas colonialism that occurred after the War of 1898. So there's that long history. But there's three differences that seem to distinguish the acquisition of colonies in 1898. First... There's the scale of that conquest. Taking the Philippines, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and Guam meant displacing the sovereignty of 14 million people. Second, the territories that were acquired, in some cases like that of, say, the Philippines, Hawaii, and Guam, spread the American empire to geography far from the continent. It was non-contiguous with the rest of the nation. The war also had global consequences for the Pacific, the Caribbean, and for the Atlantic worlds. And third, and finally, the acquisition of the colonies did not follow the same pattern of continental expansion. And what I mean by that is that white settlers did not immigrate to the colonies, and the colonies would not eventually become states, although Hawaii would be the exception there, and time Hawaii would become a state. Now, there are several wonderful books out there about the War of 1898, the acquisition of territories, the governance of these colonies, and even some people have written about the anti-imperial movement that opposed American colonialism. But I am not interviewing an author of a monograph today. The inspiration for today's podcast instead comes from the art world, and specifically from an exhibition at the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. It's entitled 1898 U.S. Imperial Visions and Revisions. And if you're in the D.C. area, this exhibit is worth a visit. It's the first major Smithsonian Museum exhibition to examine the War of 1898. And to me, that last fact is hard to believe. We're 125 years out from the, the Spanish-American War, and there has never been an exhibit at the Smithsonian Institutes. This exhibition showcases more than 90 objects in order to present various perspectives 
of those who advocated for expansion, those who opposed expansion, and those who tried to have agency over their political futures when the United States came to govern these territories. It is on until February 25th, 2024. Please go and see it. The architects of the exhibition are the Smithsonian's Faina Caragol, curator of painting, sculpture, and Latino art and history, and the acting senior historian of the portrait gallery, Kate Clark LeMay. With assistance, I should say, from Carolina Maestra, who they've mentioned several times in the interviews. She's the curatorial assistant for Latino art and history. Welcome to the podcast, Kate and Taina. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, I, I just, I want to say how much I enjoyed the exhibit I visited two weeks ago, but my, my natural inclination is to ask you, why 1898? I mean, what gave you the idea to recall the war, its aftermath, the great debate? And I also noticed that in your description of the exhibit, you said that the Smithsonian hasn't done this before. So why now? Right. The Smithsonian has not undertaken a, an exhibition um, of this scale, exploring the overseas presence of the U.S. Um, and um, or its, yeah, its, its expansion overseas. Um, why did we decide to do this? Well, the exhibition was six years in the making and um, Kate and I, uh, from our different perspectives, um, you know, me as a specialist in uh, Latino and Caribbean history and art history and its relationship to the U.S. and Kate, as an art historian who uh, has devoted a lot of uh, work to, to monuments and historical memory and war, we thought that the war of the conflicts that resulted in US expansionism overseas in 1898 were really not at the forefront of um, the of public memory in the United States. You know, uh, as, a, as a Puerto Rican, 1898 is a very critical year in our history, and it is um, it's often invoked in in conversations. I would say, you know, in certain circles, almost on a day to day basis in on on the island and its diaspora. And so, um, I'm very aware of that. I'm very aware that as the as the person in charge of um, highlighting uh, the you know, the Latino presence in U.S. history, you know, that that is one strong point of connection that is often overlooked. And so that is the case also for, for Filipino Americans, for people from Guam, for people from Hawaii. And we thought that was something that, um, yes, that traversed all these communities and American history at large and art history. And so it was a good idea to to spend some time on it, to do an exhibition about it, to do it comparatively. Yes, that's the story. Kate, that the same question goes to you as well. Obviously, Taina has this perspective as a Latina, and she wants to talk about the comparative nature of the the war and the conquest, really. And um, and so, what was it for you that that sparked the interest? Well, I am a historian of American art. And like Taina said, I'm interested in how art helps us remember war. And so I've taken an angle in my past, my first book, 
about war cemeteries and monuments. And when we realized that we were looking at, well, there's all sorts of reasons. I mean, Taina and I have been talking for years and we were sort of comparing notes about US history. And I found it really interesting when she pointed out labels that were just so celebratory. And I hadn't really picked up on, you know, that part of writing American history. And I became more and more aware of the Latina point of view through talking to Taina. And then I also realized in my own family history, I have this, you know, ancestors who have fought in all sorts of American wars. And we talk about some, but we do not talk about the Spanish American war ancestor. Um, in, and yet he is a closer sort of, uh, timeline than say the civil war veteran whose stories have been passed down. So I, I became aware, I think of the gap of knowledge as Taina and I compared notes and um, it actually took me a long time to even realize that my Spanish American war ancestor had, had been a part of this ugly, ugly war in the Philippines. He was a, a volunteer in Nebraska. Um, and yeah, so there's a lot of uh, connections that we make as art historians from the art object to the history. And that is so fascinating as we are both curators and historians of US history, albeit you know with different concentrations. But the 125th anniversary is also this year. So we, we felt that this was a very timely exhibition. It was kind of of the moment to, to look again at the Spanish American Cuban Philippine War, which we sort of call the War of 1898. And then to be more inclusive, we realized that the annexation of Hawaii should also be addressed because it was certainly part of the zeitgeist of that moment of the US expansion across its, you know, across the seas um, and its interest in sea power. So that is sort of how it came about. Really, it was through comparing notes with a brilliant colleague. Also, in, in terms of how you considered the exhibit, you mentioned uh, labels and geography. There's a real beauty to the exhibit when you walk in. It's it's very imperial feeling. There are these banners on the wall that label the geography, you know, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines, et cetera, right? And then there, it's it's like this feeling of a world fair. You know, the world fairs, they all had those um, the sort of international forums for uh, cultures to show off like what's going on in the Philippines or what's going on in, in Cuba. That's the vibe that I got from it. But I'm wondering as the designers of the space, what your plan was, or was that part of your thinking? And how did it come to be designed? That's really a great question. We have a design and production department. And um, as we plan the exhibition, we meet with them regularly. Uh, we go over the current draft of the list of artworks that will be in the show, which evolves over time and over six years, <laughs> which is a longer period than, you know, like museums work two and three years ahead, but six years is like really, we, you know, we, it, it was a different sort of, uh, you know, different level of, of logistics, organization and complexity for, for an exhibition um, like this one. And um, as the design and production department started to do, you know, to embark on their 
particular contribution to the project, which is to design the space. Um, they came to us with some ideas. It's very interesting that their, their first idea was to use a, a, a color palette for the walls that was green and brown. And Kate and I looked at each other and we're like, but this is about the sea and the ocean. <laughs> and so we need to think, we need to think blue here. <laughs> uh, and 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 it's uh, derived, you know, tones, right? And so, um, no, but but then the conversation flowed very, very smoothly. Um, they came up with that brilliant idea of using the banners to identify each geography. And that was, I think, very, very smart. Many people have asked us about those banners uh, and they certainly lend a feeling, uh, a feel that of, of um, world exhibition sort of feel. And um, however, we were very clear also that this was a delicate endeavor in terms of design too. By no means, uh, we would have wanted to create a feel that that was uh, celebratory of this history, of course. You know, we wanted to maintain a critical perspective on all of this, and that had to be reflected in the design too. So at some point also, like the text for the for the banners was like in, in diagonals, and it, it just seemed it it gave a very different look to it, and that was not as somber. And we said, no, no, we need to go for elegant and sober and serious because this is a history with repercussions until today that are that need to be probed um but also you know the other element here that is that that contributes to the design but that it's separate from it is the art the artwork and Kate and I travel to 74 collections uh, around the world <laughs> to all these different places that were implied in in what we call the conflicts of 1898, and by that we 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 mean that amalgamation of the War of 1898, the Joint Resolution to Annex Hawaii, and the Philippine American War, and uh, we found some incredible artworks that bring that story to life. Yeah, I I, I agree. Actually, um, I I did think being the National Portrait Gallery that there would be dozens of portraits from the usual suspects. And before we started the interview, we were talking about uh, the John Singer Sargent portraits of Leonard Wood and Theodore Roosevelt and even Moorfield Story. But uh, I was delighted to see some collections from Manila uh, and Puerto Rico. I mean, there's the, for example, the portraits of non-American combatants like Jose Rizal. I mean, can you say a little bit about these? I mean, fairly often, I mean, if the war of 1898 is forgotten, these combatants are definitely forgotten in American history, right? Yeah, I, uh, Taina and I, from the beginning, knew that we wanted to tell this history that was grounded in the U.S., but from a comparative point of view that put on equal terms the points of view of the Philippines, Cuba, Guam, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico with the United States. and. You know, you really cannot be a curator in 2016 thinking about this kind of project without being aware that the U.S., it should not be a U.S.-centric story. And 
Taina's personal experience growing up in Puerto Rico really helped us hone in on that. Um, and then, you know, the fact that she's fluent in Spanish uh, as her first language, I think really gave us um, an advantage to understanding the points of view outside of the U.S. And then I, Taina was talking about all the travel that we did and the 74 collections. I mean, we, we made that effort. I went to the Philippines twice. I went to Hawaii twice. I went to Guam once. Um, in order to familiarize ourselves with art of those places. Taina went to Spain. You know, she made multiple trips to Puerto Rico. Um, we both went to Cuba, which was an experience in and of itself, right? <laughs> because this, Sorry, this sounds like torture, by the way. Your jobs sound really unglamorous and torturous. Right? <laughs> well, it kind of was in a, in a way, Michael, because we had to do this through the pandemic. <clears throat> and we were lucky that we got the majority of our travel out of the way. But going to Cuba in March of 2022, I was afraid I was going to get stuck there because of the multiple do a testament of like you had done a test and then we had to do a test, you know, with the only credit card in the island of Cuba uh, to pay for it. <laughs> but it was just, it was like a whole, it was a whole thing. But we were very privileged to be able to um, take the time to visit those places. Yeah. I mean, I, I know the job sounds like torture and it's... Uh... <laughs> No, I um, we're incredibly privileged to work in the in the art field because it's it's work that is inspiring on a every day every day every day we're inspired by 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 art by what artists uh, the present and of the past have have created um, you know just to elaborate a bit on the difficult parts. Um, this exhibition um, required a lot of a lot of fundraising to be able to do the trips that would make it possible. Kate and I had a very ambitious vision for this show in terms that we were not going to settle for a collection-based show on this chapter of U.S. history because it was going to turn into <laughs> just a futile exercise and one that would be celebrating this history and not probing it. So it, it, the project required that we do all this travel and that required also that we do all this grant writing, <laughs> tons and tons of grant writing, uh, which is the not fun part of all of this, of course, because, you know, it's, it's um, you know, how it is, you know, you're, you're a scholar yourself, you know, you submit so many grants, you're rejected so many times, you are rewarded some, you know, some other times, but it's really, it's labor intensive. And then there are the reports. Oh my God. And like, and I have to write one more report. Uh, but, you know, again, to, to get back to the positive, um, we were, we were successful in the grants. We, we got a 250K grant from the Mellon Foundation that we're especially proud of. Um, once the Mellon you know, put its weight behind us, and and I mean, what a what a boom that was for us, frankly. Well, it's good to hear that even the National Portrait Gallery has to, you know, struggle to get patronage. Really, of some, of you know, because we we in the academic world, we all have to do it. It is it is a thing, and it is 
it's the rejection is difficult, the report writing is difficult, and then getting back up and doing it all over again for the next project. It's like a, it's like a hamster wheel. But um, I, I want to let's get to the art because that's really where your passion is, and, and as you say, that's the that's the big positive and the big takeaway. And for me, um, when Taina asked me before the interview what uh, sort of sparked my imagination most or what I was most interested in when I came, I mentioned the Moorfield story charcoal that Sargent did, but in hindsight, the thing that really got me was not the portraits um, at the National Portrait Gallery. It was the scenes, the landscapes, which I had never seen before. And I had never actually, I obviously considered the perspective of other peoples involved in the war, particularly belligerents on the Filipino and Cuban side. But I hadn't really thought about what these places looked like. And there's a scene, a landscape of Ponce and the port and there's um, there's also some of a Cuban peasant that's talking with a, a Spanish soldier. And to me, these were really new insights. And I was wondering from your perspective, how important it was to consider the landscape and the scenery along with the portraits. Very important. It was crucial. It was, um, yes, we're the National Portrait Gallery. We tell history through portraiture. Um, we collect only portraiture. Um, however, when we do history exhibitions, uh, we we do include in our shows sometimes other artworks or objects of material culture that are not portraits, and that was very important in this history because it's a very because the the way we decided to approach it was so expansive, um, and so it was going to be very unfamiliar for a lot of people, even for for people affected directly affected by that history who still remember the year 1898, they might know how the how 1898 affected the history of their own island or archipelago, but not necessarily of another one, right? And there were so many destinies that were changed that year, political destinies through this US overseas expansion into the Philippines, Guam, Puerto Rico, um, Hawaii and um, and the establishment of a U.S. protectorate in Cuba, so um, so it was important to include scenes, you know, naval scenes to include um, to include uh, scenes that gave us an idea of the landscape of the of how of, of certain places, so that people could situate themselves in the city of. Ponce, Puerto Rico, or in a uh, rural town in Cuba uh, during the Third War of Cuban Independence, or uh, so that they could they could sort of envision the Battle of Manila Bay on the first of May. Right? These are all artworks that help us give dimension to the conflicts of 1898 um, and to the people who who were involved in them. I mean, this was really fun for us, was to visit all these collections and kind of put our expertise as historians of art into selecting the works of art that would tell the best narrative, the most clear narrative, and yet through the best art. So. We were able to work with curators from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which if you if you are a curator out there, you know how hard it is to get them to agree to any loan, right? So Diana and I are like very diplomatically strategic because we wanted to make sure that 
we were able to borrow one of two of their treasures. It's called the Conqueror's Calibra Cut. And it's a picture by, a painting by Jonas Lai that depicts the, the construction of the Panama Canal from 1913. And it's an incredibly modern work of art that captures the violence to the earth that was enacted through superior industrial technology that the United States employed. But it also captures the humanity of the workforce who are kind of trudging out of this deep gash in the earth. And they're, they're painted with not very much detail, but you can see the weariness and the slope of their shoulders. And it creates a real insight into what must have been a very difficult and sometimes treacherous experience for those workers, most of whom were from the West Indies. Um, and then the other painting we brought from the Met and that we were quite proud of is the Winslow Homer painting, Searchlight on Harbor Entrance, Santiago de Cuba from 1902. And that is quite an homage to U.S. naval modernity in that it displays the use of the searchlight, which was invented in 1893. And so the fact that the U.S. was the only nation to put electricity on their vessels, and you're looking at this, basically a moonlit, moonlit seascape, See, seeing these searchlights coming out of nowhere. Homer really captured the very eerie feeling of, of surveillance, of being watched. And of course, on July 3rd, the Spanish fleet attempted to escape from this very narrow harbor mouth of the Bay of Santiago and the U.S. Navy, which was sitting there waiting, sunk every last ship of the Spanish. So it's really a painting of the hunt. It's a painting of ruthlessness and it describes the context of the war. But then you look over and you see a portrait of Leonard Wood or Jose Marti, and you're like, oh my God. You know, it kind of connects everything through the art, which was so fun for us. And we were able to, again, like work with curators and really brainstorm with them and share our ideas and get their support. And um, this is really why we do this, right? It's through the human connections that we all make in bringing history alive and hopefully, you know, teaching people who, who are interested. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I think you, you've, you've accomplished that. The portraits and the scenes really do. There's a, they have an important connection, and it, it comes through. It, it also comes through in other things, and, and not just the, the paintings, but you've got political cartoons there as well. And, of course, this is the golden age of political cartoons. I was just wondering how you picked them, because, I mean, the, there's been a lot written, I guess, about um, Cuba being depicted as a, a, a female maiden in distress, and, um, and there's, there's, there's millions of these images. Um, how did you pick them? Yes, we, uh, we chose just a few of them uh, because there has been uh, a lot read about those images. You know, when you, when, uh, when you speak about the visual culture of 1898, what people, I think what comes to the forefront of people's minds is these cartoons, right, um, that, that infantilize the, the new colonies, that, yes, picture Cuba as a maiden in distress, um that very often had very racist depictions of um of the of the rebels the the the, the revolutionaries in the Philippines and Cuba and so we just chose a few of those um notably we have um a drawing a caricature um of uncle sam uh, surveilling and sort of claiming stake over Pearl Harbor. Towards the end of the show, we have another of uh, um, a, fa- a famous cover of Harper's Weekly that shows all the new colonial subjects in a classroom. Um, I think it's called um, Uncle Sam's New Class or something like that. Um, but we try to not be too repetitive of what has already been said and to discover new dimensions. And so one of our favorite parts, because it was so wild and bizarre and perverse, uh, was finding all these board games and uh, objects that that were commercialized during the war to promote the war in the United States. Um, that is just a selection. Kid and I saw much more. We saw puzzles. We saw, uh, I still think about the shot glasses uh, with with the faces of naval naval staff of the the U.S. Navy. And um, uh, I can, I have pictures in my head of people getting drunk with those. (laughs) 
Well, incidentally, I don't know if you know this, but uh, George Dewey was so popular that he had a cocktail named after him, and it is delicious. But it is it's designed to, um, to orange bitters that are supposed to taste like Seville and cardamom seeds that are supposed to have a taste of the Philippines. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. This is an incredible period of consumerism. I loved the board games. Yes. Isn't it weird? It's like you love them, but you kind of want to like. Like Taina knows that I've confessed to loving them, right? But at the same time, it's they're so perverse that it's kind of like I, I, you know, with the hand and with hat in hand, I'm kind of like, yeah, I kind of really like these. Um, but for me too, it's interesting. They they draw a through line to like the war gaming that's done in professional military education and um, strategy schools, right? That are employed to this day um, within the U.S. military's teaching. That, that's interesting. I hadn't even considered that. I just saw the the bright colors and the you know the sort of gamifying of war, which but um, that's fascinating. I hadn't realized that. And 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 Dewey had um, a lot of things named after him. Roosevelt would have Leonard Wood. I mean, did you stumble across things that like for example, I know there was a washing machine na- named after uh, Commodore Dewey. Um, did you find things that you just couldn't fit in the space that you had? Oh yeah, all the time. Yes. And that was like you tying in. You remember when we would sing each other, to each other, do we do we do we do we do? Because it was like yes. this, this sheet music. We have all these insider jokes for our six years of working together that you know only Taina and our curatorial assistant Carolina Maestre will now understand. Everyone else will probably think I'm nuts, but I actually we we saw um, well Taina. You should talk about your trip to the Wolstonian. Right. No, the, thank you. The Wolfsonian collection, the uh, what is it? The Wolfsonian uh, Museum um, of FIU, uh, Florida International University, Miami, has it's, it's a museum of propaganda, and it has an incredible collection around the War of 1898, and uh, they have a lot of well, among the many many materials they have, from books to to stationery produced in honor of the war, uh, uh, to they have a huge collection of sheet music. Uh, a lot of sheet music was composed to commemorate the war at events, in hotel, reception rooms, you know, in all sorts of activities. And uh, Dewey had many, many compositions uh, honoring him. And one of them was called Dewey, Dewey, Do. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Dewey, Dewey, Do became a, a thing for us. And um, it was, it was yeah, like, Dewey, 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 Do, you want to marry me? Like it was, it was yeah. <laughs> something like that. Yes. Yeah, sort of romantic. So we, we just found it. I'm going to find this and I'm going to post a link on the website so that we can have, and maybe we can get a reenactment. That would have been a great addition to the exhibit. <laughs> <laughs> and I also found Taina, um, the the fan, like Taina and I set our eBay alerts and as one does, right? When you have six years of working at a show. And so I found this really cool fan that had port, it was a curiosity piece, right? So, so the, the spines of the fan were, were like stems of a pansy. And the, the leaves of the pansy were, there are four petals, if you will. And then on one petal, there's a portrait of 
one of the you know so-called heroes of the Cuban blockade campaign. And um, so you had Schley and Shafter and Hobson, um, Sigsby, but then you had McKinley and Roosevelt. So like, just throw those guys in for good measure <laughs> because they are so popular, I think. Um, but yeah, there's some really interesting like material culture just from that era that we we had fun with. One of the, the big, uh, the objects, and I say big because it is enormous, uh, is the Hawaiian coat of arms quilt. And that is something that if people go onto the website, they can they can check out the object. I don't know will they get a sense of scale from what they see online and what it is in the room, but what inspired choices like that? Because that's a pretty obscure object that um, obviously tells the story of Hawaii in a way, but um, how do you stumble across that that? And then how does that get in, but other things get left out? We wanted to tell the story of Hawaiian resistance. Um, you know, Taino was talking earlier about how we were sort of measured and limited our selection of caricatures because it's a painful history. And I think that you have to be very sensitive to the people who are still living in this history. And Native Hawaiians certainly are in that group and they, they feel this history alive today in a way that's very painful for them. The flag quilt displays the Hawaiian flag on all sides of this very large quilt. And in the middle is the coat of arms of the Hawaiian monarchy. And the embroidery is exquisite. It shows two guards whose ears, right down to the detail of their ears, you can see the lobe of their ears outlined in yellow embroidery, um, the two guards that are pictured in the coat of arms. And this is this was a wedding gift made after the overthrow, and we think probably around the time that Hawaii was annexed to the United States. So the overthrow was in 1893, and the annexation was in 1898, and then Hawaii became a territory in 1901, and then a state in 1959. But the fact is, this was an object of Hawaiian resistance, but also love of their queen and devotion. And it says so much more than what Taina and I could put in a label, right? To explain the continued feelings that Native Hawaiians have. So I think um, I also like to picture it as it was probably originally used, which was sort of wrapped around a canopy bed with a top rail of a canopy bed. So if you were to visit someone who had that flag quilt and maybe pass by their bedroom, you could see that they're still flying the Hawaiian flag. So there's a lot of symbology in there too that harkens back to the various parts of Hawaiian history. So there's a St. George's cross, right? To represent the, the English sort of involvement in the islands. I suppose we could say the same about the Philippines as well. The Philippines is like 5,000 islands in the archipelago. I mean, it's probably the most demographically diverse place on the planet, not just in terms of uh, the geography, but also the cultural differences, languages, ethnicities, religions. 
But in the exhibit, one of the things I noticed is that it tended to focus mainly on Luzon, the, the largest island in the archipelago, and on the illustrados, or, you know, the sort of intellectuals of Luzon and Manila and Cavite, um, like Aguinaldo, Agoncio, and uh, um, Mabini. Did you think that there was more to tell about the Philippines? Did you think that there was more about Philippine resistance that went beyond Luzon and beyond those uh, illustrados? Well, yes, for sure. Um, there is a kind of, um, there's a commodity of space that we have to deal with. And in order to tell the points of view and give, you know, sort of the same kind of space to all, to belong, for example, which always gets left out. You can't tell the entire history of Hawaii or the Philippines. And I hope that our show serves as a conversation starter, really, for, and I think it probably, it, it certainly has in Hawaii, I know that much. Um, and people are taking the torch and, and maybe expanding the examination of history to make it more inclusive of what they would like to see, representing you know, more events. But in terms of the Philippines, yeah, it's a huge archipelago, not in at all of one culture. And the revolution against the Spanish of 1896 was, you know, really led by Andres Bonfacio and Emilio Aguinaldo. And Bonfacio is, is not in the exhibition. We, we couldn't, we found one portrait of him that was in very poor condition and that was in a collection that was um, too, too far to ship to us. <laughs> it was too costly. So we decided to kind of do um, uh, an overview of the insurrection against the United States. But to tell where that came from, you really need to talk about Jose Rizal. And then to talk about where it went, you need to address guerrilla warfare. So we kept it as tight a narrative as one possibly can um, to not lose the thread of the 1898 exhibition goals, which is really to highlight that year. Yeah, I think that's a fair enough, you know, curatorial decision. I think there is so much to cover, which is, which is almost the point that I'm making. I don't think, um, I think, I think you have struck a narrative here, and I think it is that there are many perspectives and. I'm not, this is not a criticism of it. Um, I just, I wonder myself about the Philippines. I wonder about, are there portraits out there of the Sultan of Sulu? I mean, I don't know, are there? And I think that that in itself oh, yeah. is an interesting question. From, from the 16th century? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a posthumous kind of representation of him by Juan Luna um, that we include in our book, actually. It, it's a really beautiful um, representation of the agreement between the, the Sulu, the Sultan, and, um, and the Spanish. We found the kind of armor, something very similar at least to the kind of armor that he was wearing. Well, that's interesting as well. So that's in the Smithsonian collections. Yeah, yeah the Datu Sikatuna. And then, yeah, and um, I argued for this to be in our book because this, Juan Luna is probably the preeminent artist of the Philippines from the 19th century who, you know, lived into the 20th. A masterful painter. His name should be known by everyone, but 
he's kind of, you know, underrepresented. This is such an interesting kind of brings to light that detail of, of the Sikituna's outfit. <laughs> uh, no, it, and the book does include much more than that's, that's in the exhibit. I think that's a, a good thing to point out. And this just gets to my point about my, my broader point about is 1898 just too darn big? And, and what I mean by that is um, one of the portraits that I saw was the Supreme Court Justice John Marshall Harland. And it, it made me think of, and I don't know, I think you may have mentioned it in the, but I can't remember, the insular cases, which are ruled in 1901, and they have a, an extreme bearing on the territorial sovereignty of all of these places, including their relationship to the United States. And I mentioned Moorfield Story's portrait, and I thought of that that long history. And I mean, can you cover all this? You mentioned Panama's in the the exhibit as well. And you know, where do we draw the line on what gets in and what gets out? I know I've been asking that question again and again, but it's kind of like I wish you could take over the whole floor and do 1898. We did talk about that, <laughs> doing our own. Our, our, you know, we we. We had expansionist desires ourselves, you know, of taking over the museum with this show. <laughs> Something we regretted to not cover was contemporary art, because there's a lot of contemporary artists from uh, the, the, the current or former territories of the United States who are still making artwork about it. And so, yes, that is also covered in the, in the book, in my essay. Um, but yes, it's a really good question, Mike. I mean, like we've been, it was very hard to delimit the, the scope of the exhibition. We knew 1898 was the flashpoint. Something that was very important to both of us was to have a sort of an elastic timeline, which is the one we applied through the show, right? And as you go from from gallery to gallery, from bay to bay, rather, because um, in the space, we wanted to start the history of each of each uh, geography of Cuba and of Puerto Rico and of Hawaii and the Philippines before 1898. It had to start before 1898. We needed to provide some prior context in order to make it clear that these, pe these people and places did not come into existence in 1898, you know, through U.S. expansion. They had their own political developments, cultural developments, you know, things were happening there before. They had their own decolonial struggles. And so, and then, yes, we wanted to then shine a light on, on the turning point that 1898 represented for them. We sort of took um, a case-by-case -case approach to how far into the 20th century we went in each gallery. What something we do when we do the tour, uh, when we tour people through the space is that we, we are able to elaborate more on what happens in the 20th century, right? But- Well, the one thing that struck me about what you're saying, Taina, is that when you're leaving the gallery, there's the video of the Rough Riders, which is an interesting, sort of epilogue to the the gallery and sort of saying that this is the start of the American century or something like that? Yes. Sure. Indeed. That sounds good. <laughs> so the start of the American century, it's uh, Theodore Roosevelt with, you know, who, who you've written a lot about and who uh, has a very um, sizable ego and is... <laughs> 
It's also the first time, really, it's the first time that film was used to record a, a war. And, and Taina, yes, but it has, but, but there's this funny contradiction, right, in, in yeah. that film, that, yes, it's the first time that film is available to record a war, but that's not a scene, it's a, it's a replay, it's a reenactment. It's not. It's a 1920 film uh, from the um, um, uh, short movie, wasn't it? Called. It was called The Rough Riders. No, it's actually well. It's it's from 18. It was made shortly after the war, but it was made in Orange, New Jersey. Uh, the reenactment is in Orange, New Jersey, uh, and it's of a. It's it's of a battle in Cuba. Um, so just look at the trees. <laughs> different in New Jersey as opposed to <laughs> the, the Hollywood before Hollywood but yeah I, I know what you mean and, and in it, so I just want to say that um you know with the insular cases I mean that is a huge point that Taina uh, especially delved into and um, we recruited for our audio component um Judge Helpy to speak about the legal aspect of John Marshall Harlan's case. You know, the well, the insular cases of John Marshall Harlan as as was lone dissent in the insular cases down versus Bidwell. Right. He 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 authored the dissent opinion and and I I know you've also written about this, um, Michael. But yes, so so that was important for us as a way, as a pointer, really, to the 20th and 21st century. You know, these are very consequential cases. And um, some lawyers who are invested in uh, achieving civil rights and equity for people in the territories talk about, about the insular cases as the next frontier after Plessy versus Ferguson, right? The next legal frontier um, in finding appropriate constitutional representation for everyone. Kate and I really um, had uh, an amazing experience co-curating this show, uh, also with the assistance of, of Carolina Maestre, you know, and, and uh, it's, once you, you know, you, you work on this for years, you have to do an incredible amount of research with the goals that we put on our, you know, that we impose on ourselves, you know, of, of doing this com comparatively. That became very, uh, very onerous, really. Um, and also very, uh, it required, of course, that uh, we reach out to numerous scholars across these different places to, and 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 be very humble about what we knew or didn't know. It's really easy to make mistakes. I mean, it, it, at least in my experience, I was reading some sources that just elaborated to the point of exaggeration, and and I didn't realize, you know, this is actually not a good source, <laughs> or the sources that are native that in at least in the history of Hawaii have been overlooked on purpose because that story demonstrates resistance to the U.S. seizing of Hawaii. And that is a story that most Americans really would prefer probably not 
to know about because it's it's a difficult one. It's painful. Sure. It it, it paints, forgive the pun, it paints the United States as the imperial conqueror rather than the uh, benevolent assimilator, as McKinley had put it. Um, I mean, the insular cases I'm fascinated by. I would love to ask you a lot more about that. And I think that your your exhibit is, uh, it truly does justice to all of the historians in the U.S. and those that are outside of the U.S. as well. I think it, it really has a broad base of um, of research. I mean, there's another thing about all this, too, that I was thinking about, that it's a live issue. This is not I know we're talking about it moving into the 20th century, but really this has moved in the 21st century. Neil Gorsuch has recently said that the insular cases are bunk and they should be um, basically eradicated from constitutional law because they have no basis, of which he has got you know a valid point. And I, my politics don't line up with Neil Gorsuch's, but, um, but I, I do think that's an interesting thing that my politics don't line up with his and yet there is some, uh, some interesting common ground there. And it, it brings me to the great debate, which does feature in the show, in the exhibit, um, you know, the anti-imperialists versus the imperialists and the, the domestic debate that goes on within the United States over whether it should be a republic or an empire. And you've got the banner up there that says republic or empire. And I suppose the question that I had for you is, is it a failure? Is the anti-imperialist movement a failure? I mean, and then how do you tell that story through the 20th and 21st century? That is a fascinating question, and you're the second person to ask it in the last two weeks. Kate, do you remember when we were in Miami, someone asked that question, but on the sort of, they asked the reverse question, because even if the anti-imperialist did not succeed in uh, preventing US expansion overseas, the premise of their question was that according to them that the, you know, if the U.S. is an experiment, that part of the experiment has not worked out very well. <laughs> and therefore, according to this person who asked the question, um, it is, uh, they, they had a point. The anti-imperialists had a point. So there's a sort of um, an intellectual victory there. This is what we were asked in Miami two weeks ago when we were doing a book presentation. You know, it's an interesting perspective. Um, I, um, you know, for us, it was very important to show in the exhibition that there was a debate surrounding this war. I think it's very easy as history marches on. Um, and, and of course, you know, with the huge amount of books that were produced immediately after this war and for the next several decades, you know, celebrating this war, it's it's easy to remember it as a as a victory and uh, to never question that whether, you know, it was positive or negative or, you know, what are the things that are still unresolved from this war. And so I think one of the parts that we enjoyed the most was was curating that section because it showed the debate. The debate had many different voices. It was contradictory. Uh, in it, 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 you know, the the different agendas of the people under the umbrella of the anti imperialist League were so, you know, how can you have a Mark Twain and Ben Tillman in the same room? <laughs> It's very odd. 
It is. I also noticed on your portrait of Ben Tillman, it's a it's a side portrait, so you can't actually see the ugly side of Ben. Well, they're both ugly sides, I think, but uh, you know, the one without with him missing an eye. Um, yes, he he was mostly pictured in profile because he was missing an eye. So famously, he's mainly portrayed that way. But that portrait has a very interesting story because it came to us in 2020. Um, a descendant of Benjamin Tillman you know, called us and said, uh, we have this portrait in our family, have had it for generations, and we cannot live with it anymore. He doesn't represent us. And Kate and I were like, wow, he can be in our show. You know, he's a really important part of the story, you know, within the anti-imperialist movement. We would be remiss not to tell that part. We don't have another portrait that represents it. And so that was really fortuitous. It's um, it's a it's a great it's a great juxtaposition of having the likes of Morfield Story, the founder of the NAACP, uh, nearby Ben Tillman, who admitted to stuffing ballot boxes and uh, taking part in um, in political violence against African Americans. Um, I was gonna say a little bit about the um, did the anti imperialist league and movement fail, and I I'm not I don't know, but one thing that it brought to mind is how during, in, during the Philippine-American War, the Filipinos were fighting guerrilla warfare style against the U.S. soldiers. And the U.S. employed concentration camps, strategics, like what the Spanish had done in Cuba and what the U.S. had, you know, criticized them for. That, that knowledge, because it was essentially a war that the U.S. was losing or not doing very well in, that knowledge of that war was not really put out there. And, and so, you know, the, the failure, as I see it, is in the recognition of parts of these conflicts that are, that are maybe embarrassing, you know, to some people in the United States or a difficult history, certainly at the time, maybe not as much embarrassing now, but what would the officers in charge of strategy during Vietnam have done differently? Had they understood the Philippine-American War? And likewise, Afghanistan, you know? I just think that there's some parts of this history that have been so dulled to American memory that it has been to our disservice as a nation. And that's not, you know, that should be a lesson about sort of why history matters. <laughs> and and I think that that is the big failure of that moment, really, was to preserve the history in a way that people understood it better. Sounds like you've got your next uh, exhibit here, right? The From maybe the Indian Wars to the War of 1898 to Vietnam to the global war on terror, you know, America, anti-insurrection. I mean, I, I know you're going to be depressed, you know, doing doing more research on that. I, I, I want to ask you one last question because we're, we're running short on time. And um, I, I think this is quite possibly one of the most important questions I'll pose to you, which is how do you think that galleries like the National Portrait Gallery tell our history different than the books do? And I mean, this is it's interesting that, you know, it's the 125th anniversary of the war, and yet there aren't that many books that I can see out there that have been released 
to talk about the war. And yet there's this exhibition that's on that is doing the heavy lifting. So how does it do it differently? I think, it, well, you know, Taina and I are biased because we're art people, right? So it's an experience. It's a phenomenological experience to walk through a gallery and to be confronted with a portrait of Queen Louis Okunwani. It's right in the sight line behind McKinley. She overshadows him. And that is honestly such an interesting visual to contemplate, maybe to wrestle with, um, to, to, to spend time with. And so when portraiture comes face to face with you as a viewer and you see people with their dignity, you know, kind of being presented and you understand a little bit about the biography, I think it's a bridge through time in a way that books don't necessarily have the same connection to the reader sometimes. I mean, we all love books, right? I'm, I'm not... But I think that it's just a different experience in, in a sense that um, the, the sensory experience of a, an exhibition like ours is unforgettable. And people are going to be thinking about it, you know, for time, you know, year after year, we hope. What Kay just said was absolutely beautiful and captures it beautifully. I think the, the only thing I would add is that um, for a long time, the museum repeated the history that was in in the in the in historical in history textbooks in the most conventional way i would say you know and i think the 21st century has brought energy of renewals in uh, an energy of renewal in 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 museums in museums particularly that have uh, national missions certainly in the past uh the past 5 6 years but also in a stronger way after 2020. However, we have to remember that this exhibition was in the books before that, you know, and I think that that's something to make really clear. We've been thinking about it for a long time already. We're doing a show in a museum that understands that it needs to, to probe chapters of history that have not traditionally been probed. And so, you know, that it's important to ask um, to go into difficult chapters, into violent chapters, into chapters where the aims of the nation ran uh, in contradiction, as it was said, not by me, but in in 1898 by the anti-imperialists, you know, in, in contradiction to some um, founding principles. And so it's important to examine that, right? And I think uh, you know we're lucky to be working in this time in history uh, where it is possible to do a show like that. Being beautifully put by by both of you, um, and thank you very much for joining me. The exhibit is on display until February twenty fifth, two thousand twenty four. Uh, Kate Lemay and Taina Caragall, who I'm going to get the enunciation right at some stage. Um, are the architects of this of this beautiful exhibit, and uh, I would encourage everyone to go out and visit it. And thank you both for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Thank for you so us. much. It was wonderful. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter 
or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.